Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. We've just had one of the quietest summers in British politics in nearly a decade. Last year, there was the race for the next Prime Minister. The year before that was Afghanistan. And then before that, we had Covid, Brexit, more Brexit, elections, referenda. But this year, it's been pretty nice. And to be fair, after last year, we needed the break, didn't we? It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader. We've got pro-growth, pro-enterprise, pro-business, Conservatives on one side and the anti-growth coalition on the other side. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning. I am humbled and honoured to be elected as leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. But on Monday, the MPs will be here in Westminster again, and politics will be back. So, from my first episode back, I wanted to give you a briefing on everything that's coming up in the next few months. All the big political moments we can expect before the end of the year. We've got reshuffles, a king's speech, international summits, a by-election or two, an autumn statement, and everyone's got their eye on a general election that could be less than a year away. I've got you some of the best brains around, the best political journalists here in Westminster and around the country, to give you the ultimate guide to what's ahead. They plan to get more into an attack mode and attack Keir Starmer when it comes to his record as DPP. People around Keir Starmer and in his office are unhappy with Lisa Nandy. So whilst people might not get much worse off over the next six months, they're still going to be not feeling very well off and worse off than they were 18 months ago. It is a big thing that will really give a pretty big signpost about where Scottish politics is going to head between now and the general election. I'm not going to nail my colours to the mast because one <laughs> thing you never do in Northern Irish politics is do that. We are potentially heading to a quite a dirty election on both sides. So from Politico, I'm Alva Ray. And this week on Westminster Insider, we're going back to school. I've got a new backpack. I actually have. I've sharpened my pencils and I'm briefing you on what to expect from the next few months in Westminster. We're potentially a year or less from the next election and the Conservatives are roughly 20 points behind in the polls. For a lot of people, including, awkwardly, some on the Tory side, the next election is already a write-off. 
But Rishi Sunak isn't giving up quite yet. So Rishi Sunak back from California and Taylor Swift spin classes. What is going to be top of his mind going into the autumn? I think going into the autumn, we're not supposed to use the R word reset. This is The Spectator's political editor, Casey Bowles, on Rishi Sunak's Not a Reset, Reset. Number 10 are quite allergic to the idea that they are changing strategy. Um, They think it suggests almost an admittance that things haven't gone to plan. It's just the question is, was it always planned to shake things up in the autumn? Or is part of the measures at least uh, a response to the fact that polls are pretty sticky um, and they need to ultimately, you know, throw the kitchen sink at it and see if anything does work in terms of improving the situation for the Conservative Party? So this reset that isn't a reset, what might that look like? So I think there's a few strands to it. So I think the part that was always going to be there, which is ultimately changing the pace, is that the situation which Rishi Sunak inherited when he entered number 10 was clearly problematic, to put it mildly. The chaos of the fact that two prime ministers were ousted by the party meant that part of the five priorities is trying to earn the right to get a hearing from voters again, because voters have just switched off from the Tory party. Now, they may still be switched off, But I think in the autumn, they plan to use a few events to try and say a bit more about what Rishi Sunak would do. There are three big ways in which Rishi Sunak is planning to bring in his reset this autumn. The first was already underway by the time we were recording. And that's every politico's favourite thing, a reshuffle. Grant Shapps has replaced Ben Wallace as Defence Secretary. What do you know about defence, Grant Shapps? And some of Rishi Sunak's most loyal junior ministers have been promoted. 38-year-old Claire Coutinho pole vaulted into the Cabinet, the first of the 2019 intake to do so. I certainly think there is a bit of a spirit at the moment in Rishi Sunak's top team of, you know what, let's just do what we want, get the people we know are loyal to us, and not just loyal, but are actually going to go out and try and win the election which might not sound like a particularly novel concept, but Alva, you will know as I do, that lots of Tory MPs will say, oh, the next election is lost. It's all about the battle after. And therefore, I think in this reshuffle, it's trying to make sure you don't have dead weight. And instead, those who actually genuinely think there is still a chance of winning or at least massively reducing losses. So there's that mini reshuffle and maybe another one later in the autumn as Rishi Sunak hopes to get onto an election footing to take the fight onto the airwaves. He's got a track record of delivering for this country and he's got five priorities that he's going to do this year. He's going to harbour... So childcare is a really important issue to this government. We are doubling the amount that we're spending on childcare in the next couple of years. Which means that actually you're not going to see the price of a pint going up in your local pub due to our new draft beer duty relief, something that we couldn't have done when we were in the European Union. But another part of that will be Tory party conference. The leader's speech at conference is always a big deal. We have an episode on political speeches from October 2021, which shows just how much thought goes into them months in advance. But Rishi Sunak is planning not one, but two major events at this year's conference. The traditional speech and a less formal rally. They're part two of the reset. Special advisors were told um, over the summer recess, make the most of conference because this could be the last one before a general election. Uh, and therefore, that's the chance to try and um, you know, say a bit more about what Rishi Zinnick plans to do for the rest of his time as Prime Minister, whether that ends next year or against all the odds goes on a bit longer. 
But revealing more of his own vision could come with some political risk. So you could have a situation, I think, where Richard Sunak is a bit more not dismissive of the record of his predecessors, but in order to say how he would do things differently, are we going to see him starting to disagree with some of his Tory predecessors? I think that's something you could start to see as he lays out his plans, which can help him cut free, but it's also always controversial within the Tory party, of course, because you have a situation whereby, you know, Tories who are supportive of Boris Johnson, Theresa May, others um, get quite offended or think, you know, you should be defending the record. King Charles will deliver his first King's speech on the 7th of November as part of the state opening of Parliament. And, contrary to what you might have thought, it's about more than pomp and ceremony. This is actually part three of Rishi Sunak's reset. I think it is a big event. Rishi Sunak had a choice to make when he entered number 10 about when to have this. Um, And I think part of the reason it was delayed was so that he could use it to actually think about what Sunakism, as I'm calling it in inverted commas, um, might look at rather than just taking legacy bills or legacy plans from the uh, Johnson and Trust governments. And therefore, the King's speech will be aiming to do two things. First, there are just some bills that they need to have in the, in the full session in order to, to achieve their goals. But also, you can use it as a political instrument to try and create dividing lines with Labour and give her a flavour about what you would do the next time around. So I think we're already seeing some of the dividing lines which you can expect there to feature in the King's speech. So I think one is energy. Because of the Uxbridge by-election, I think everything is seen as, uh, you know, Keir Starmer or Rishi Sunak trying to dampen down uh, net zero in a desperate bid for votes. But I think at least in number 10, energy has always been seen as a dividing line with Labour because of their policy on uh, gas and new licences in the North Sea. And so therefore, I think they will push further on that. I think it's something that's seen as particularly useful um, in terms of voters in Scotland. Then I think crime is going to be a really big part of the King's speech. I think you can expect the last I heard at least two bills on crime, um, tougher sentences featuring. Of course, as soon as you get to tougher sentences, it does beg the question of where are the prison places. But that is an, another area where I think they do think there is a dividing line. And it also, which I'm sure we'll get onto, tax onto ways they plan to get more into an attack mode and attack Keir Starmer when it comes to his record as DPP. So, Katie, you mentioned in your I column that part of the new reset in in the autumn from the government will be uh, a more gloves-off approach to attacking Keir Starmer. The listeners of this podcast will be well aware of sort of more controversial attack lines that have been used against Keir Starmer in the past, particularly around his record as DPP and particularly around Jamie Savile. You uh, seem to be hearing that actually those attacks might come back, even though they were quite controversial when they were used by Boris Johnson. Yeah, I had an interesting conversation, a plural, conversations with various figures in government. I always find it slightly strange looking at the polls and then comparing conversations with people in government because there's no shortage of MPs spelling doom. And I think some government advisers, but those particularly close to Rishi Sunak. And perhaps they're just spinning a yarn, but they generally seem very convinced and very calm about turning things around. And... One of the things that comes out in these conversations was uh, the fact that they think a strategic mistake by Keir Starmer goes back to the spring when Labour did those attack ads. 
The grubby tactics, the underhand attacks. Now it's the Labour Party accused of going too far. With a tweet that reads, Do you think adults convicted of sexually assaulting children should go to prison? Rishi Sunak doesn't. Outrage ensued, but then came this. More of the same, Labour doubling down. In number 10, they think that's a green light to say, OK, well, you've gone in the gutter. If we go back in the gutter, is that really going to be such a controversial thing? You've actually made it so we now feel we can. I think it's going to be a lot on Keir Starmer's record as DPP. I think they've been going through, uh, you know, all the specific cases and trying to find ones that will help with this narrative that Keir Starmer is, you know, on the side of the wrong people and here are the people who suffered as a result of people he supported and so forth. I think we'll start to see from the autumn onwards. And some of that actually coming from Rishi Sunak himself rather than just outriders. So I think we are potentially heading to a quite a dirty election on both sides. If the Tory mood is one of attack, the Labour mood is one of caution. They're terrified of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory and just trying not to rock the boat in the coming months. Side are the Labour Party on? We are on the side of economic growth. Will you just let me please get on with this? Thank you very much. But Keir Starmer will finally have a reshuffle this autumn. The one we've been expecting here in Westminster for a very long time. It's going to be a really exciting time for politicos, given that we are expecting both a government reshuffle and a Labour reshuffle. This is my Politico colleague, the very plugged in deputy editor of London Playbook, Eleni Correa. And if you can hear the faint murmur of cicadas in the background, it's because she very kindly zoomed in from her holiday in Cyprus to fill me in on the latest gossip. What I heard over the summer period was that the biggest roles would definitely sort of stay in place. Uh, so roles like Yvette Cooper as Shadow Home Secretary, um, David Lamy as Shadow Foreign Secretary, Rachel Ruiz as Shadow Chancellor, of course. The kind of biggest question for Keir Starmer is really what role he wants to give Angela Rayner and equally for Angela Rayner, what role she wants to have going into the election and what she would want to be doing in government if they won. And Eleni, there have been briefings or rumours that Lisa Nandy could be in for a swap with Angela Rayner or even a, a demotion because of, a, a, I suppose, a suspected disloyalty. Is there anything to those? Yes, I've heard various uh, things about how people around Keir Starmer and in his office are unhappy with Lisa Nandy as uh, sort of as performance and ge- a general sense that she's both not working enough and not towing the line enough. I guess there's a, there's an element of which Lisa Nandy also stood for the leadership. Lisa Nandy is now the shadow levelling up secretary. But you probably remember her from the Labour leadership contest against Keir Starmer and Rebecca Long-Bailey, where she dominated the main wars with her fond love of towns, towns, towns and villages. Perhaps um, Keir Starmer and his team feel like she always has one eye on the leadership, perhaps. Um, I don't know that, but there's just this general kind of distrust there, it seems like. And on the other hand, other people say that this is just a way to make space for Angela Rayner to take that role because that's been identified as a good role for Angela Rayner, so Lisa Nandy has to move. There are two by-elections coming up at some point this autumn. The first is in the rural English safe Tory seat of Mid-Bedfordshire, 
after five elections, I'm leaving an almost 25,000 majority. It's a baton I'm proud to hand over. That's where Nadine Dorries has finally resigned as the MP, just 81 days after announcing she was quitting with immediate effect. That's shaping up to be a three-way fight, with Labour and the Lib Dems fighting to be seen as the main Tory challengers there. And if Rishi Sunak's lucky, they might just split the anti-Tory vote and the Tories could hang on. The second by-election is up in Scotland and arguably even more interesting than Mid-Bedfordshire. You might remember back in lockdown, an SNP MP, Margaret Ferrier, tested positive for Covid and then got on a train the whole way from London to Scotland. And we can confirm that Margaret Ferrier has been ousted as the local MP here in Rutherglen and Hamilton West. That by-election will be a really interesting test for Labour and the SNP. It is a pivotal moment that will give us a pretty good idea about the shape of Scottish politics over the next little while. This is Kieran Andrews, The Times' Scottish political editor up in Holyrood. It's Hamza Youssef's first big electoral challenge as leader of the SNP. And if it's a sore one for him, then his internal critics in the SNP will ramp up that pressure on him. What enthusiasm remains in the SNP will sap away a bit more and it'll be potentially very testing for them. The flip side to that, of course, is that Labour have been talking up, massively talking up, the gains that they think they could make in Scotland and how Scotland could suddenly propel Keir Starmer from potential minority administration to making the difference and being a majority government. But if they don't win and win well in Rutherglen, then there'll be pretty serious questions asked about you know, exactly how good is uh, Labour's ground game in Scotland. Has it all been sapped out since those pretty morale-breaking defeats that have dulled them for the last decade or more uh, north of the border? So it, it is a big thing that will really give a, a pretty big signpost about where Scottish politics is going to head between now and the general election. Labour is hoping to gain between 10 and 20 seats in Scotland at the next election. And Rutherglen and Hamilton West is a particularly useful bellwether because it's in west-central Scotland where there are lots of similar tight Labour SNP seats that Labour has to win back if it wants a majority. Rutherglen switched to the SNP in 2015, that incredible surge that came after the independence referendum. But then Labour did win it back in 2017 under Jeremy Corbyn, only to lose it at the next election in 2019. So just by the history of it, you'd expect it to swing back. But also, if if Labour can not only win, but win well, given the circumstances, given the police investigation that has been ongoing into the SNP, given, as you say, Margaret Ferrier, who was the SNP MP before being thrown out of the party after travelling the length and breadth of the country, picking up a criminal record in the process um, whilst having covid if Labour can't properly win that and feel comfortable and have a convincing victory, yeah, people will be asking questions. And what issues are likely to come up in that seat? At the moment, funnily enough, it's Labour policy which is which is driving it. Obviously, as with any um, election, the cost of living and the big issues that are facing across the UK are hanging over everything. But what's been really interesting is 
the differences between Scottish and UK Labour have really been quite apparent in this. Keir Starmer's decision not to scrap the two-child benefit cap. Um, There has been a bit of internal grumbling within Labour over gender reforms after Keir Starmer came out and said he was opposed to self-ID, which, of course, the uh, Scottish Labour Party voted for at the Scottish Parliament. And we'll get a date expected to be early October, so it's going to be a short, sharp campaign but I think that's when we'll really see, um, you know, the kind of issues that the people of Rutherglen are, are feeling come, come to the fore. As Kieran alludes to, it's been a rocky few months for the SNP. How times have changed in the short weeks since Nicola Sturgeon was at the forefront of Scottish, indeed British, politics. Uh, the former First Minister of Scotland is now a police suspect is now uh, being questioned by police. The arrest really couldn't have come at a worse time and it totally overshadowed the First Minister's uh, speech today. Wow. What an incredible, warm welcome from you all. Where is the SNP at the moment after so much drama? It's basically at the moment hoping for the drama to end or at least be resolved one way or another. The worst-case scenario is what's currently unfolding for the SNP, which is a period of limbo. And until there's a resolution, it will just hang there with rumours and speculation and difficulties for the entire party, but also for, for Hamza Youssef in trying to escape this massive question mark um, that will have a really significant impact on the SNP's electoral fortunes. But until we know what the outcome of this investigation is going to be, I'm afraid that angst, which exists amongst very senior members of the SNP, just about the fact that this is still rumbling on, I'm afraid that's not going anywhere. up after the break, your essential policy briefing on the economy, foreign policy, whether the government will come back in Northern Ireland, and the big moment that could set the political weather for the next election. Stay with us. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A message from Lloyds Banking Group. Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group 
is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. In part one, we dealt with all the stuff we love here in Westminster. The politics, the new strategy in number 10, what's at stake in the next big by-election. But there's a lot more going on from a policy perspective in the coming months. And top of that agenda is, of course, the economy. I promised to support you with the cost of living when I first became Prime Minister. Some food products have gone up more than 30% since 2021. More than a third of people have been finding it hard to afford rent and mortgage repayments. And one in 20 have run out of food and been unable to afford to buy more. Of the 6.4 million working private renters, half are only one paycheck away from losing their home. Well, it's not terribly cheerful as people will have gathered. I went to the Institute for Fiscal Studies to meet Britain's top economics boffin, Paul Johnson. We've obviously had a a year of uh, cost of living crisis in which prices have been going up a lot more quickly than incomes. Inflation's still high, although it's on its way down and growth is pathetic. So I think relative to last year, we've got sort of more certainty as to where we're likely um, to be. But we're starting in a much worse place. The energy bills are already much higher than they were a year ago. Inflation is um, on its way down, but higher than it was. Uh, Interest rates are much higher uh, than they were and likely to stay there. So whilst people might not get much worse off Um, over the next six months, they're still going to be not feeling very well off and worse off than they were 18 months ago. Sometime in November, the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt will stand up and announce the government's latest plans for the economy in his autumn statement. I think it's certainly possible that not much will happen in, in the autumn statement, not least because the situation in terms of government borrowing and debt is quite difficult at the moment, no doubt, Uh, the Prime Minister and Chancellor would like to be offering some goodies, some giveaways before the next election. Um, But they've got their own rules about how much they're allowed to borrow. And in the last budget back in March, they were hitting right up against that. I mean, they were were barely meeting their own self-set rules. So they may not have much room to do very much at all from a borrowing point of view. They're also going to be worried, I think, about giveaways with inflation still much higher than where we want it to be. And if you pour more money into the economy, that could itself create problems. It looks most likely that if he's got anything really big to announce, he might wait until March. That will obviously be um, closer to an election and maybe therefore more salient in people's minds when we get to that. But there are still a few things Jeremy Hunt is likely to introduce in the autumn. The Chancellor is clearly focused on trying to get additional growth into the economy. He made some reforms to corporation tax in the last budget. I think he might want to make those permanent. He made changes to childcare to try and get people into the labour market. He might have, we might see more things trying to get more people um, into the into the labour market. But of course, most of these things take a long time. What about for Rishi Sunak then? Because in January, he, of course, set out his five pledges And three of those were on the economy. So by the end of the year, we'll be looking to see whether he's met those targets. And I suppose the big one is whether he can have inflation by December. Do you think he's likely to meet that one? Yeah, I mean, the inflation target was the only one he put any timescale on. As you say, by the end of the year, he said it would be half where it was. Um, 
I think he might, but it's looking much closer run thing than it did back at the beginning of the year. Back at the beginning of the year, you look at the Bank of England forecasts and it looked like we were you know, very likely to have inflation down by at least half by the end of the year. Things have got worse since then. The Bank of England has got less positive about how things are changing. So whilst I think we might just about get there, we might also just about miss it. It's going to be a very close run thing. Um, and that's not great because that means that prices have been going up more for longer than we expected. It's also worth saying that the Prime Minister made that pledge because that was the Bank of England's forecast. Actually, there's very little government can or does do about the about inflation. It really is, in the end, quite explicitly the role of the Bank of England to do that. And then what about the other targets on the economy that actually Rishi Sunak and the government does have a bit more control over? He set a target. He didn't put a precise time frame on it, but uh, to get the economy growing and to have national debt falling. Where is he at the moment on those and where is he likely to be by the end of the year? Well, as you say, the um, target was to get the economy growing. Well, the economy probably will grow this year, but by a a tiny amount. It will still be a a pathetic year from the point of view of um, economic growth. Uh, When it comes to getting debt down, well, you look at the official figures back in the March budget and in you know, precisely those figures said yes debt will be falling in 5 years time but by an absolutely tiny amount from an extremely high level and then only on the assumption that after the election um spending is incredibly tight so again even if we meet the uh, the letter of that uh, obligation or of that promise it's not. It's still going to be quite worrying. The, the the level of debt, the rate at which we're borrowing, the amount that we're spending on debt interest, which is at pretty close to record levels, at least over the last fifty or sixty years, all of those things are making that a very difficult target to meet. And lots of Tory MPs would love to see taxes cut at some point. That's unlikely to happen. Well, it's it's always possible for a chancellor to you know, find a few billion for a pre-election tax cut. But I would say two things, three things probably. First, um, it is absolutely certain that taxes at the end of this parliament will be much higher than taxes at the start of this parliament. There's nothing that Jeremy Hunt could possibly do which will stop a situation in which taxes are much higher in 2024 than they were in 2019. Um, and and you know, that, that, I think, was just inevitable. The second thing to say is that even if the Chancellor does find a little bit of room for cutting taxes before the election, I'd stake quite a lot of money on taxes going up very quickly after the election, whoever wins the election, uh, because there's lots of pressures on public spending. And then the last point uh, I make in terms of a tax cut pre-election is what the Chancellor does not want to happen is he cuts taxes in November or March and then the Bank of England come out and say, well, we're going to put interest rates up because of that because we've made us more worried about inflation. Now, that's not something he'd want politically or economically. Rishi Sunak will be off to India for the G20 summit on the 9th of September where he is hoping to do something that boosts the UK's anemic economic growth. Absolutely the biggest prize, aside from the G20 summit itself, it's the prospect of a trade deal. Here's my political colleague, Eleni Correa, again. It would be an amazing thing for them to get to India. It was his first visit to that country as Prime Minister and kind of just unveil this um, trade agreement that 
both Liz Truss and Boris Johnson had been hoping for. A trade deal with India is seen as an important part of the UK's tilt towards the Indo-Pacific post-Brexit. Now, negotiations have hit some stumbling blocks over visas and immigration in the past. And since I spoke to Eleni, the government has started playing down the chances of getting a deal completely finished by the time of the G20. But if it happens at all, it will be a good news story for number 10. And if it happens at the G20, it'll be particularly good for Rishi Sunak's reputation on the world stage. The idea of Rishi Sunak going to India itself is something that people in number 10 and in government more widely are quite excited about because they think it's going to be quite a big moment um, for him and his own image. I spoke to somebody senior in the government who's been to India in the past year for some of the meetings in the run-up to the summit. They were saying, well, um, we think he's going to be mobbed when he gets here. Coming up to an election, foreign policy often slips down the agenda. But Rishi Sunak cares about being seen as a leader on the world stage. And Number 10 thinks it's one of the areas where they have a better story to tell. When Liz Truss was Prime Minister during that brief period, um, Rishi Sunak, I mean, given his own background, had a lot of connections, you know, from, from Stanford. He knows various people in kind of big roles around the world. And he was really embarrassed uh, kind of scrolling through his WhatsApp conversations with kind of old friends from school and university to see all the memes that people were sharing about the UK under this trust, you know, the economy crashing, the kind of the fact that the UK had become this international laughing stock. And I think that genuinely is one of the things, you know, restoring the UK's reputation in that sense was definitely one of the things that motivated him when he after he came into number 10. What's really revealing is the fact that he focused on the Windsor framework. So that was the agreement uh, to kind of ease uh, the trading situation between Great Britain and Northern Ireland when he became prime minister. Um, So just to kind of smooth the the form that Brexit had taken and the trading barriers that had popped up. And a lot of people um, sort of in number 10's orbit will tell you that he considers that, you know, possibly his biggest achievement so far since becoming prime minister. But despite that breakthrough on the Windsor framework, the government hasn't been sitting in Northern Ireland since February 2022. So I asked BBC Northern Ireland's political correspondent, Jane McCormick, what the chances are of Stormont coming back anytime soon. So here in Westminster, Jane, for kind of the past few months, we've been talking about the autumn as the time that maybe the DUP might want to go back to Stormont, the time that the Northern Irish executive might get up and running again after the local elections, after Windsor Framework and so on. Now that we're actually coming up to the autumn, how likely is it that anything changes in Northern Ireland? Well, Alva, the closer we get to that deadline, kind of quote deadline, because everybody's described it as being the time that people are going to go back into Stormont. But actually, the closer we get to it, the more it feels like things are actually starting to slip out of reach because... Look, you're right. I mean, you know, the Windsor framework was agreed back in February, but I think the DUP made it pretty clear at that time that even though it solved some of the problems that they had around the Irish Sea border and its implementation, it still didn't go far enough for them. So what we've had in kind of the six months since that have been these negotiations between the DUP and Number 10, where the DUP have been trying to get a little bit extra from the government, something that Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, the DUP leader, can point to to be able to say, well, look, we got what we wanted. Our position in the union is secure. We can go back in. 
not the DUP put forward a paper um a couple of months ago, an 18-page paper, we're told. We know the government has since responded to it. And at the minute, the DUP is working on their own response to that. But there's no urgency around any of this. So even if the government is to come back once Parliament returns at the start of September and says, OK, well, we can offer you this, you only have a couple of weeks before the party conferences begin. In the middle of that, we have this investment conference that is taking place in Belfast that Number 10 has organised. Now, I think the government would like Stormont to be back up and running by the 12th of September, but anybody you talk to will say there's no way that is going to happen. So it just looks like things are on the long finger a little bit again. And add to that, I think the fact that there isn't a huge appetite within the DUP at the moment to go back in. There's there's nobody that's openly saying we need to be back in now. They're not under any pressure from their grassroots to do it. Do you think it's likely that it could still happen within this year or are we looking at Stormont out indefinitely or is that too big a question to ask you? Look, I mean, I'm not going to nail my colours to the mast because (laughs) one thing you never do in Northern Irish politics is do that because things can happen all of a sudden so you can have nothing for ages and then very quickly a talks process can come out of nowhere that is what happened last time um we had this period of collapse that went on from 2017 until 2020 so we're we're 18 months into the most recent collapse here so there's you know nothing to indicate that we're going to reach the three-year mark but at the same time there's nothing that is telling us at the minute that all of a sudden this is going to be wrapped up and, and sorted by the time 2024 rolls around so you know the question becomes if there is a talks process in the autumn well then i think the ball is going to be back in the court of the government and of course the irish government to say well what are you going to do about this there's never really been any sort of clear discussion about joint authority which would be a role for both governments it's something that you'll know westminster has shied away from i think the irish government would be a bit keener on it but they've never spelled out what it would look like and at the same time, um, you have all these questions about, well, you know, would directoral be an option? Because while the Secretary of State, Christine Harris, and Steve Baker, his deputy, have said directoral is not something we're looking at, I think it's more likely that, that that's where the DUP would like to land if they can't get Stormont back up and running. But Jane, for people who don't follow Northern Irish politics as closely, can you just spell out briefly before we go what the impact is of not having a government up and running in part of the UK for such a long period of time? I think the biggest impact is financial because, you know, across the UK, we've had the impact of the cost of living crisis. We've had inflation. Um, We've had measures that the UK government has introduced that have been allowed to take effect in Northern Ireland, measures that, you know, wouldn't be reserved for local ministers. But the biggest thing at the minute is we are politicians aren't in place to set a budget. So the Secretary of State had to act and impose a budget back in April for this financial year. Um, That meant Stormont's departments having to impose some really tough cuts in order to make their books meet. With no ministers in place to take political decisions and you have civil servants trying to to kind of just keep the lights on and keep things ticking over. So one civil servant put it to me, it, you know, it's not that things aren't working. It's not you're going to notice immediately the streetlights aren't being switched off. People are still going about their day-to-day lives. But over time, public services start to decay because there's been there's nothing that's being done to plan and to transform them. We have local councils, but they don't have the powers that councils in England have, for example. So everything starts to grind to a halt. But for all the back and forth in Westminster, Holyrood and Belfast this autumn, the most important political moment of all might come in the courts. In November or December, 
the Supreme Court will be delivering its verdict on whether the government's scheme to send asylum seekers to Rwanda can go ahead. This could be a verdict that fundamentally changes the political weather. So this is the government's appeal of the judgment by the Court of Appeal hinged on whether Rwanda is a safe third country to send asylum seekers to. This is my political colleague, Annabel Dixon. The judgment that we've just had was that a majority found that it wasn't. So they basically upheld the arguments of the people who brought this case that sending asylum seekers to Rwanda would breach human rights protections and particular the prohibition against torture and inhuman or degrading treatment, which is part of the European Convention on Human Rights. The government's indicated that it's going to appeal this decision. And while that appeal happens, no asylum seekers can currently be sent to Rwanda. So we're looking at maybe November. We will find out whether their appeal has been successful and whether they actually can send asylum seekers to Rwanda. But it's taken on a little bit more significance in Westminster as possibly like quite a big moment that could change the political weather. Yes, I think that's right. And certainly strategists that I've been talking to think that this could be a huge moment for Rishi Sunak if that appeal is not successful for the government. And they they really think it, it could be sort of game on. And at that point, Rishi Sunak is going to have a really big decision to make about whether he bows to pressure from an increasing number of his party who want the Conservatives to campaign to take Britain out of the ECHR at the next election. The ECHR, just to remind you, is the European Convention on Human Rights. It has some quite good rights in it, like the right to life, the right to a fair trial, and, the bit that's standing in the way of the Rwanda policy, protection from torture and inhumane treatment. So we've heard a lot of off-the-record rumblings from cabinet ministers over the summer that their party could campaign to leave the ECHR if they are continued to be blocked. This is the Rwanda plan that Rishi Sunak's actually staked a huge amount of political capital on if that plan continues to be blocked, then I think the pressure really is only going to mount. Because if you think back to the Brexit referendum, bashing European judges was actually a real vote-winning strategy in the past for the Conservatives. So the way it was sort of framed to me by by one strategist was this idea that they could um, sort of reignite that take-back-control campaign, which I think we've all heard before. Which is so interesting because it it actually sounds almost like it plays more into the government's aims or strategic aims not to win this appeal. I think some people see that. And I think there's a certain wing of the party that thinks it could be quite politically expedient. But I actually think for, for Number 10 Downing Street and for Rishi Sunak, Number 10 has been very circumspect at the moment. And it seems really reluctant actually to lean into this this rhetoric around leaving the ECHR. And, you know, they're saying, continue to say that they think they can secure their commitment to stop the boats while remaining within international obligations. Rishi Sunak's really trying to play the global statesman since he won power. And after all the Brexit sort of rancor of the last few years, he is actually trying to rebuild bridges with European allies. So I think 
it would be very difficult for him to execute that strategy while also fighting an election on this particular issue. Stop the boats. Stop the boats. Stop the boats. And we'll be able to stop the boats. You'll know if you listen to this podcast every week that not all voters care about stopping the boats. But those who do are often those who voted Conservative for the first time in 2019, located in exactly the seats the Tories and Labour are fighting over at the next election. A Labour advisor told me that they know it's unlikely, but they have a fear of Rishi Sunak calling a snap stop the boats election, using leaving the ECHR as the dividing line with Labour. And the pressure is building from parts of the Tory party. There has been a conflict in this country between human rights law and the rule of law. Now, I'm disappointed we're still talking about reforms rather than withdrawal from the European Court of Human Rights. We're in, in exploring a range of options, all options, to ensure that we have that level of control over people so that they can flow through our system swiftly. Well, if it's a means to an end, if we can do it without leaving, then fine. If we find out that we'll have to leave, then I'm open to that. It might not be Rishi Sunak's natural instinct, and it would be hugely controversial. But if Rishi Sunak the statesman comes up against the Rishi Sunak who desperately wants to win the election, who will win? The answer might just be a little bit clearer by the time this year is over. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Alva Ray. If you've enjoyed it, please spread the word, follow us, and maybe leave us a nice review. Aggie will be back next week. She's here now to tell us about what's coming up. Hello, Alva. I love the episode. <laughs> Thank you. You have to say that. <laughs> I have to say that. But yes, I'm very excited about next week's episode. What's coming up? So right now, there are seven former prime ministers living among us, um, which is the most they've ever been. And you know, we could be in a situation where Rishi Sunak becomes an eighth former prime minister at a point next year. What do they all do? So I'm sort of looking into what they do do and potentially what they should do. So I've spoken to people at the top of politics, historians, journalists, even people from speaking agencies to, to try and find out exactly what's going on with the former prime ministers in our country. Oh, that is so fun. And do you get any goss on what they chat about when they're all together for a, a royal event or a church service? Or That's actually part of the conversation I had with one of the people I spoke to who's thought a lot about this, that they're going to have to keep on going to these events over and over again and seeing each other. It sort of seems like Groundhog Day. Oh, I love that. Oh, this is going to be such a good episode. I can't wait. My producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions and here at Politico our executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and our editor is Jack Blanchard. Aggie will be back next Friday. See you you then. then. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.